Amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus uh, chapter 8. I'm actually going to read the last verse of chapter 7 um, through chapter 8, verse 19. Listen to the word of the Lord. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. The Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. The Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. The Lord did according to the word of Moses. And the frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. They gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart, would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask you this morning as all of us sit under the authority of your Word that you would speak to us, that you would do that work in us, that you would transform our hearts and our minds, that you would give us power to live lives in keeping with your word. Bless us this morning, Lord, and speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. We're continuing our series in Exodus, Free at Last, and I've entitled this sermon, The Finger of God. <laughs> the Finger of God. Throughout God's confrontation with Pharaoh, his administration, and the people of Egypt in general, there has been and will be a repeated statement made by God. 
to be delivered to his own people and to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And the statement is some version of the clause that they may know that I am the Lord. Throughout God's acts of judgment in Egypt, the, uh, this phrase will be repeated, and even where it is not repeated, the message behind his acts will be the same, that they may know that I am the Lord. In other words, God, God ties uh, his acts not only to the accomplishment of Israel's salvation, but also to the accomplishment of the spread of his name throughout Egypt and by extension to all the nations who would hear of God's mighty acts in Egypt on behalf of His people. And in so doing, God uh, would not only take down an oppressive empire and deliver His people from it, but in so doing, He would also set free many of those who were participants in that, imp that, in that oppressive empire and deliver them from service to it and to service to Himself the only true and living God. Another way of putting it is that God was declaring in His confrontation with Pharaoh and Egypt that He was no tribal God confined to one group of people and their interests, that He was no localized deity, a localized deity confined to one territory or one nation, that He was no idol that could be shaped and fashioned to fit one's own purposes and desires. God, God was declaring to His own people and to Egypt that He was the God of all humanity, the God of all the earth, the, 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 one, around which, the, the one around whom people were to shape their desires and purposes, not the other way around. And these plagues, these, these acts of, of God's salvific judgment, if you will, were meant uh, not only to be salvific, they were also apologetic. That is, they were meant to let everybody know who God was and that true deliverance was to be found in Him and in Him alone. And, and what this story goes on to, to further communicate to His people, uh, to the people of God, is that, is that when God comes to save, what, he often, uh, what He's often met with in individuals and groups of individuals were like Pharaoh, what he's often met with are people in nations that are hardened in their sin and in their rebellion. What he is met with is sin, sin in its personal expressions and sin in its corporate expressions. He is met with the sin of individuals and the sin of nations, the sin of families, the sin of empires. What he is met with is people like Pharaoh who are asking the question of those who have been called out by him to declare His salvation in the world, who is this Lord that I should obey His voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. I don't know about you, but I'm glad this morning that I serve a God who is not afraid of our hard hearts. I am glad this morning that I serve a God who is not afraid of hard hearts. I'm glad that I serve a God who doesn't shrink back in the face of human stubbornness. I'm glad that I serve a God uh, who, does not, who does not cower at the sins of nations. I'm glad that I serve a God who does not fear the sins of families or the sins of empires. 
I'm glad that I serve a God who, who stares down that stubbornness and that hard-heartedness and declares through His acts of salvation, I am the Lord. And when I'm done working among you, everyone around you will know that I am the Lord. Indeed, even those who refuse to bow the knee will still have to declare because of what God is doing that He is the Lord. Uh, this is why I've titled this sermon, The Finger of God. For in that third plague, which Pharaoh's magicians were unable to duplicate through their secret arts, uh, they were left to declare openly what they had known all along, that all of what was happening, all of what was happening was the hand of God. They, 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 they had tried to keep up the ruse. They, they had tried to help the administration further the lie. After all, they were paid staff. They were, they were paid to make Pharaoh and, and his administration look good. But at the end of the day, and in the face of what God was doing, they simply had to declare what they knew all along. We are up against something and someone greater than us. We're not ready to bow the knee to him, but, but we also can't deny what he is doing. Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. There was another moment like that in the history of God's people, another moment when, when someone paid by the administration to do his bidding, but, but staring down the chief act of God's power to save, ha had to break from his own stubbornness and declare, this is not human, but divine. Of, of that soldier standing near the cross where, where Christ was crucified, having felt the earthquake and seen all that had happened, we are told when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. What I'm saying this morning, brothers and sisters, is that God's acts of salvation aren't just for the sake of those who are already His people. They are also for the sake of those He is calling to Himself. And this truth calls us toward an examination, an examination of our own hearts to see the roots of that stubborn sin that causes us to resist the knowledge of the Lord, that we might turn from that stubbornness, and an examination that will help us in declaring God's salvation to individuals and to nations around us, that they may turn as well from their stubbornness to the Lord. So what is the finger of God? What is God's work of salvation among us? What does it actually reveal about our stubborn hearts? Before we start, let me, let me just say to those who might cringe at the comparison of Pharaoh's stubbornness, which ends in tragedy for him, to us who are believers, that God Himself refers to His own people as stiff-necked. When Moses reminds them in Deuteronomy of why they are taking possession of the land of Canaan, Moses writes, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you that, you, that He may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. I'll remind us in a few why we are saved, <laughs> but certainly it ain't because we are less stubborn than they were. Amen, people of God. <laughs> so in the face of God's salvation, in the face of God's salvation, stubbornness 
often chooses negotiation over obedience. Negotiation over obedience. Look again at verses 8 to 11. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away uh, the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when, I'm a, when, when I am to plead for you and, and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. The Pharaoh had hardened his heart uh, in, the in the face of the first plague, the, the, the turning of the Nile into blood. And while the first plague had affected the people of Egypt to the point where they had to dig uh, wells to get fresh water, Pharaoh himself uh, would actually have been exempted from experience this particular part of the hardship, since he would not have dug wells to get water for himself, but would most likely have had people dig wells for him to get that water. Yet in the second plague, God made sure that the hardship would reach Pharaoh himself. The frogs wouldn't just be found in the homes of his people, but according to verse 3, the Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. Pharaoh had to face this act of God. He had to deal with the consequences of this plague, and it got Pharaoh's attention. It got his attention so much that when his magicians performed a magic trick that produced frogs, Pharaoh was not impressed this time. And he was not impressed because it was not the production of more frogs that Pharaoh needed, but rather the removal of the frogs from his land. Indeed, I think it's safe to say that Pharaoh himself was beginning to understand that he was up against something and someone more powerful than his own magicians and his own gods. Therefore, unlike the first plague, he doesn't just go back into his frog-infested house, but rather calls for Moses and Aaron. And he asked them to plead with the Lord to remove the frogs from his land, promising that in response, he will let Israel go to sacrifice to the Lord. But I want you to notice the nature of, 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 the, of the stubborn human heart. Rather than doing what the Lord had already told him to do, which is to let his people go, Pharaoh enters into a negotiation with the Lord through Moses. Even though he uses the word plead, the request is, is, is kind of like this. If the Lord does this for me, then I will do in part what he's asking me to do. In other words, Pharaoh in his stubbornness, he's maintaining the delusion that he has some ultimate power, some ultimate control over his circumstances. Indeed, even his promise to let the people go is only a promise to temporarily let them go, to sacrifice to God. The expectation, of course, is that they will have to return to their condition of servitude to Pharaoh and to Egypt. And Pharaoh is promising this temporary release, knowing at this point that God is demanding a full reversal of Israel's condition. Let my people go that they may serve me. Remove them from your oppressive service that they may freely and fully serve the God who has covenanted with them to be their God and they his people. 
So here's the point. Rather than obey God as he should, Pharaoh wants to negotiate with God from a deluded position of power. Contrast Pharaoh's negotiating request with what we see from Moses, and the point will be made clearer. Moses in verse 12 cries out to the Lord. There's no delusional sense of power here. Moses knows that the only one who can control these things, control these frogs, is the one who created them, the one who caused them to multiply on the land in the first place. And how does God respond to Moses' humble request? Listen again in verses 13 and 14. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. In our sinful stubbornness, we often choose negotiation over obedience. And of course, we often choose this course because of a false sense of power and control. And we do this not only individually but corporately. God commands, God's commands aren't actually unclear to us, and they aren't grievous. We just really don't want to do them at times. Amen. <laughs> Negotiation over obedience. Respite over true rest. Verse 15. We, we get another window into that stubbornness that sometimes grabs our hearts, even in the face of God's clear acts of salvation. Verse 15, we read, when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord has said. So Moses goes to God on Pharaoh's behalf and on behalf of the people of Egypt. He intercedes for them, doing exactly what Jesus would tell his disciples to do, right, when confronting their enemies. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who uh, persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Even though Pharaoh's cruelty toward the Israelites is creating way more pain and turmoil in their lives than what Pharaoh and his people are enduring in these plagues of frogs, Moses intercedes on Pharaoh and Egypt's behalf. If that's not loving your enemies, <laughs> I don't know what is. What does God do in response to that intercessory prayer? He listens to Moses. And he lifts the plague. Now, he does it in a way that provides a reminder of what has just taken place. No one, when they took a whiff of the air in Egypt for a period of time, would forget that they had just been relieved of a great hardship. And yet, even with the smell still hanging on the air, Pharaoh returns to his previous attitude toward the Lord, Moses, Aaron, and the people of Israel. He hardens his heart and he refuses to listen. And that he refused to listen suggests, by the way, that, that, that once the plague was removed, Moses and Aaron went back to Pharaoh to request that he fulfill his promise to let the people go. But why does Pharaoh refuse? For the same reason that we sometimes in our stubborn hearts refuse to listen and obey the Lord. If we're honest, we sometimes choose what I'm calling respite over true rest. And, and, and respite captures well the meaning of the Hebrew here and what, what the text implies. Respite is defined as a, a short period of rest or relief from something difficult or unpleasant. God, God lifted the trial, and, and, and Pharaoh went back to clowning. 
which, which of course none of us know anything about. None of us have ever promised to act right if God lifted some unpleasant thing from our life. And then as soon as He lifted it, went back to clowning. None of us have ever done that, so none of us know anything about what's happening in this text. So Pharaoh's behavior is, is, is very odd to us, right? It's very odd to us. Some, some of us can look back uh, at seasons of our life and say, uh, and say no, that, that, that was actually the pattern in points of my life. If all the folk who promised God that they were going to go to church as soon as He lifted some trial in their life actually came to church? You see, the issue is that we often prefer, if we're honest, respite over true rest, the true rest that God offers to us. Pharaoh couldn't see it because in his sin he was bound to his own version of rest, a version in which he had to oppress others to gain that rest. He couldn't see that Israel's freedom would lead to freedom for his own people, for God had called Israel out to, uh, to be the nation through whom his salvation would be made manifest to all. Uh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh needed to bow the knee to the true and living God, uh, on the other side of which would have been true freedom, a freedom not bound up in other people's slavery, but in, 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 in the same place that Israel was to find its freedom, in covenant with God. Brothers and sisters, your freedom is not in the respite you run to either. It's not in the American dream. It's not in your political visions. It's not in your guns. It's not in your money. It's not in your careers. Your freedom, your rest is in covenant with God and membership in His kingdom. A kingdom, by the way, in which all the material things we need for this life but often run to for respite are promised to be supplied to us as we seek and pursue His kingdom. In other words, we don't have to enslave people for rest. We don't have to abuse people for rest. We don't have to discard people for rest. Rest comes in relationship with God and allows us to work for other people's rest and not just our own. Pharaoh, on the other hand, could not conceive of a rest that didn't keep the people of Israel enslaved, which is why he hardened his heart. And as soon as the plague was lifted, he went back to his old pattern. What about us? What kind of rest are you pursuing? Is it the rest that comes in covenant with the Lord? Or the temporary rest of this world. In our stubbornness, we often choose negotiation over obedience. We often choose respite over God's true rest. And lastly, submission, I mean, resistance over listening. Resistance over listening. In verses 16 and 19, we read of the third plague, which is gnats produced from the dust of the earth. And just like the frogs, the gnats infest the whole land of Egypt, including Pharaoh and his house. And it is this plague that the magicians, uh, in trying to duplicate, are, are unable. And it leads to their acknowledgement that, that, they, that they have all along been up against something and someone greater than them and their magic. And so in verse 19, we read, Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. 
In the past, the reference to them has been Moses and Aaron. But in this case, Pharaoh's own magicians are included in his hard-hearted refusal to listen. So Pharaoh refused, not only, refused to listen not only to Moses and Aaron, but to his own staff. And that he refused to listen to them suggests that they may have said more than just this is the finger of God, but may have, have carried through in their counsel that trying to stand against the God of Israel was futile. But perhaps they even were beginning to believe that, that letting Israel go would actually be best for the land of Egypt. Either way, Pharaoh, in the face of another clear demonstration of God's power, refuses to bend. Only his stubbornness in this case is a refusal to bow even to the counsel of his own paid staff. Stubbornness in the end proves resistant even to the counsel of those who are near you. Now, there's a New Testament statement of this resistance to listen. In Stephen's sermon before the Sanhedrin, after recounting some of the major portions of Israel's story of God's acts of salvation on their behalf, Stephen concludes by saying, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. In their stubbornness, the leaders of God's people in Stephen's day committed the worst act of injustice in that they betrayed and killed the Messiah, the Christ. Our sin, whether we want to own it or not, is truly that ugly. In our sin, we resist the counsel of those around us who seek to lead us in righteousness, and in our sinful stubbornness, we even resist the Word of God. And in our sinful stubbornness, we even resist the commands of the Lord Jesus at times. And we resist because we deceive ourselves into believing that our own power in that place where we are resisting will actually save us. And we do this individually, and we do this corporately. We do it on a familial level, and we do it on a national level. How, how many rulers have heard wise and godly counsel and resisted it? How many politicians? How many fathers? How many mothers? How many children? How many congregants? How many pastors and elders? How many denominational leaders? How many of us in this room have been confronted with God's salvation and with the power of that salvation in our lives and have yet in places and at times in our own lives stubbornly refused to act in keeping with that salvation? You say, okay, pastor, I hear you. I hear you. So what can we do? in the face of that reality, the face of our stubborn hearts, to which I would respond, the question is not what can we do. The question is what can God do? Indeed, better yet, what has God done? You see, the confrontation with Pharaoh is going to prove that God's power is greater than our stubbornness. God's ability to save is not diminished by our stubbornness. Pharaoh may harden his heart, but God's people are not going to be left under the oppressive power of that hardening. Instead, God is going to break the power of Pharaoh's kingdom and deliver those under its sway. Through his confrontation with Pharaoh, God is going to show that he rules and reigns over the world and that his salvation can break through the powers of sin and death and all their impact in this world. He is going to show us where our hope for deliverance individually and corporately must always be rooted. It must always be rooted in him. 
And so as you stare down your own sin, as you examine the places in your heart where, where stubbornness has taken root, as you look at the places where, where, where you negotiate rather than obey, whether you, where, where you choose respite rather than God's true rest, resistance rather than listening, God wants to remind you that His salvation isn't for folk who have got it all together. It is it's not for folk who think themselves righteous apart from it. It is not for those who believe they are sinless and are basically good. It is not for those who think themselves godly apart from God. No, the Scriptures remind us of the nature of God's salvation, of the nature of the gospel when it declares, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For, 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 for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since therefore, since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies… Some of y'all don't even believe that about yourself. While we were enemies, no, some of you all don't, don't, don't believe that about it. While we were ungodly, while you were resistant, when you were negotiating, when you were choosing respite over rest, God died in His Son for a bunch of stiff-necked, stubborn enemies of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. No, brothers and sisters, it's not our own power that's going to break through even our own sinful stubbornness, but the power of God at work in the gospel. And for those of you who have trusted in Christ, that power is at work in you by the Spirit of God that is in you. And so in those moments, in those moments, in those moments where you are tempted to negotiate rather than obey, you can take that to God, asking Him to help you by His Spirit to choose obedience. Even now, some of you can think of places in your life where you are negotiating with God rather than obeying Him. Maybe God is calling you to some form of generosity, but you're waiting for all your financial ducks to get in a row. Or maybe God is calling you to forgive someone, but you're negotiating with God the terms on which you will grant that forgiveness. Maybe God is calling you to speak up and out on behalf of someone or someones who are being taken advantage of, but you are negotiating with God the cost that you are willing to pay to do so. It can be in any area of life. My point is that when you find yourself in that space, and the Spirit prompts you that you are negotiating rather than obeying the power of God's salvation to do what He says and to trust Him. It's there for you. The Spirit is there for you to enable you to walk in obedience and trust God in the process. In those moments where you're tempted to choose respite over God's true rest, you can, th you can take that to God asking Him to help you to choose His rest. Can I just say this to you? God's rest creates rest for others. Say it again. God's rest creates rest for others. God's command to Pharaoh was that He let Israel go, that they may serve Him. In letting Israel go, 
the trouble that the land of Egypt was experiencing would be lifted. And granting rest, Pharaoh and his people would experience rest. And should they choose to bow the knee to God, that rest would have included all the blessing of, of the promises of God's covenant. Indeed, some in Egypt would eventually choose that once God had demonstrated his power over Pharaoh and Egypt. So when I say we choose respite, I'm speaking to that selfishness in us that often thinks of our own comfort, our own ease, our own fulfillment. In those places where you're tempted to think of your own respite, your own rest, God's salvation is there for you to teach you how to create rest for others. And he hasn't left us clueless either to what that looks like. Passages like Isaiah 58 make it clear what it looks like. It's to bring the homeless poor into your home. It's to provide for your relatives, your own flesh. It's to do good to the poor and needy of the earth. And I want to tell you, when you're tempted to choose respite over rest, God's power for there. God's power is there for you in the salvation he has won for you to choose his rest. And finally, in those moments when you're tempted to resist rather than to listen, you can take that to God too and ask him to help you to choose listening over resistance. How many of you are resistant to the counsel of others? Don't raise your hand. You know what I mean, though. Nobody can tell you anything that you don't already know. I just had this problem a couple days ago, right, Tanya? Nobody can tell you anything that you don't already know, Tony. Stubbornness is not good. (laughs) And some of us may be more prone to not listening to godly counsel of others than some, whether parents or friends or counselors or neighbors or the like. God has placed people around us to tell us what is right and what's good. And whether we are sons and daughters and a family or rulers and authorities in this world, we do well to listen to those who say to us, that's God, <laughs> and you do well to listen to him. But when we're attempted not to listen, God's power is there for us in his salvation that he has won for us to enable us to choose listening over resisting. Brothers and sisters, the power of God's salvation has been clearly demonstrated throughout history, and it found its fulfillment in the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It was Jesus himself who said to those questioning his work, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Indeed, the kingdom of God has come upon us through the work of Jesus Christ our Lord. And that kingdom has broken the power of sin and death in our lives for all of us who believe. Our sin no longer has dominion over us. So when that stubbornness rises up in your heart, we can take it to the Lord, who by His grace and through His power will help us choose obedience over negotiation, rest over respite, and listening over resistance. Oh, how great a salvation we have received. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise. We give you glory. We give you honor and we give you thanks that you are the God who has won our salvation, that you have broken the power of sin, 
broken the power of death, broken the power, Lord, of those evils that are at work in this world and in those who don't believe. You have broken that power over our lives, Lord, and you have placed your spirit on the inside of us. That when that sinful stubbornness rises up in us, we have power through the spirit to push it down and to choose to walk in the obedience that you have called us to, in the rest you have won for us, Lord, and in the counsel of those who would lead us into godliness. Father, I pray that your people would indeed be a people who find their hope in you, their salvation in you, their rest in you. And Father, that your name would be glorified in us, among us, and through us, that those in the world might know that there is a God. <laughs> there is a God, and in him is salvation. We pray this and ask this in Jesus' mighty name.